This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. We're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best homebrewers and get their tips and tricks to help you make better beer. So now between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. All right, and on today's episode, we'll do our usual round of feedback. we got some great things going on from people about our new show. Really appreciate it. We'll talk a little bit about our charity efforts just to remind you. Then uh, it's off to the pub where we're going to talk a little bit of Legal Eagle news here going on. Quick little stop in the brewery just to talk about something fun that we just discovered. We're going to the lab to announce a brand new experiment. And then we're heading off to the interview lounge to go talk to Frank Clemens of Flatland Brewing Company before we close everything out with a quick tip and something other than beer. Yeah, and uh, once again, we're uh, saving the questions for our all Q&A episode coming up in uh, two more shows. This is episode 34, and 36 is going to be all Q&A. If you have a question for us, please send it in uh, to questions at experimentalbrew.com, or you can even call our hotline, which is 626 626- 765-1-ALE. 626-765-1-ALE. Give us a call, leave your question, and uh, who knows, you might end up on the show. So before we go any farther, we want to uh, tell you about how you can support the podcast. You can go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, and there's a bunch of stuff you can do there. Number one, you can buy our books or an Experimental Brewing t-shirt. Uh, if you want, you can even get the books autographed. 
you can uh, click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to Brew Your Own Magazine, or you can click on the American Homebrewers Association link to join the AHA and get a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. And when you do either one of those, a little bit of that kicks back to us to help support the podcast and what we're doing. Or you can support our charity, the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society, by clicking on the Patreon link there and donating whatever amount you want. And we'll use it to uh, hopefully give some pooches good homes and take care of them. Yeah. Remember, pooches are awesome. <laughs> pooches. So give a buck. Yep, that's right, man. Help out. Uh, you can uh, give as much or as little as you like. And I guarantee you that we and the doggies will really appreciate it. Yeah, and while we're at it, don't forget, if you click on our website, you'll see a link to be able to go to Amazon. If you go to Amazon via our link, we'll also get a little bit of that at no extra cost to yourself. And plus, we'll get to see what you buy and, and think weird things about our strange random listeners. Oh, we don't know who man. Bought it, but-, uh, but we promise we won't put it on the air. No. Uh, and uh, don't forget, also, you can subscribe to our mailing list on our website so that you can actually get announcements of new things that we're doing as they're happening. And you don't have to you know, go hunting for all of our information. Right. We have so much good stuff for you. So uh, go to experimentalbrew.com and check it out. So uh, we have some listener emails today, huh? Yeah, just a couple out of the email box here. Uh First one that I got was from uh, Brandon Magnus, who actually also asked a question. Brandon, we're going to save your question for later. Uh, but he just uh, started his email saying, I just wanted to drop in some very positive feedback on the Cream Ale Brew File show. The way that Drew broke down the backstory of the style, even going into the history of U.S. brewing, was fascinating. Thanks for the awesome job. Well, thank you, Brandon. <laughs> that means so much. I I, I, I was just worried that yeah, people were going to get... Uh, like a little too eye-rolly about the amount of nerdery I was going into. But people liked it. Homebrewers so are good. nerds, let's face it. Well, all right, you want to get the next one there, buddy? Yeah, the next letter is from Adriano Sampieri. Oh, I love that name. Hi, Danny and Drew. My name is Adriano Sampieri from Brazil, oh, one of my favorite places in the world. And I've been listening to the podcast for nearly three months now. I did a binge listening. Oh, God, you could hurt yourself, man. Uh, if that and uh, just today reached the most recent episode. I want to thank you for the great show. It has inspired a lot of discussion among my homebrew club here in oh man, Joao Pessoir. Uh, that is as much Portuguese as I can muster up, but that's where uh, Adriano lives. More than that, we're thinking about doing our own triangle test regarding first word hopping since a valid point was raised during a discussion. Anyway, thanks again, and keep the awesome work on experimental homebrewing. Cheers, Adriano. Thanks so much for the kind words, man, and I am so glad that we have inspired you guys to uh, actually do some of your own experimenting and testing. That is way cool. Yeah, now you know why I also gave you that email to read. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, now I see why. (laughs) No, and uh, just for the note... uh, Brazil is a very big country, and uh, Adriano is up in the northeastern part of the country, so not even the part that we went to, but uh, Brazil is an awesome place. Brazil is an awesome place. I, I love, but I just really love hearing from brewers in other cultures and other countries because, well, I think we're all connected by beer, and that's fantastic. <laughs> that's right. 
And to go from the far away to the familiar, we also have an email from one of our Igors, Nikki Forster. Yeah, Nikki writes in to say, I was listening to the latest Brew Files episode on my way to work the other day. Each morning, well before most have even opened an eye, I get to drive directly between two hallmarks of our city with their signs, giant beacons aglow in the wee hours. Nikki's being a poet here. Yeah. All right. Uh, just as you started talking about your favorite cream ale, I was passing Kodak to the right and the Genesee Brewery directly across the river. The timing was too great not to put a big smile on my face. You've inspired me to give a homebrew cream ale a try, and I'm really enjoying the new show. One thing I would be interested in is a bit more about recipe development. While I know a lot of your choices are based on historic styles, how do you choose your ingredients and decide on amounts? Thank you to you and Denny for your continued hard work and entertaining insights. You're my absolute favorites. Cheers, Nikki. Uh, One, I want that was so nice. I want your my yeah. I want your my absolute favorites tattooed on me because <laughs> I need a reminder every once in a while. I think I think more more recipe development discussions would be kind of interesting. You know, uh, I talk some about uh, how I develop the the bourbon vanilla porter recipe and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, th- I think that more kinds of those discussions could be kind of fascinating. Absolutely. And I think uh, if they go and listen to the newest episode where I talk with Mike Tonsmere about how he went about creating an Orbeer uh, or a Dadala Orbeer clone, you'll get some of that. And I think that's a large part of how we're going to talk about recipe development is in terms of actually looking at recipes and how the rubber meets the road. And you'll soon discover that there are a lot of things out there that brewers either share in common or little quirks that they are going to be across the recipes. But yeah, uh, by far and away, if you guys have ideas for the show, please send them to us because uh, right now I have a giant list of things I want to talk about, but I also want to make sure that we're talking about things that you want us to talk about. And I also really do want to mention that we got a lot of great feedback about that uh, cream ale episode, and a lot of it came from uh, Rochesterians, I think I said that right, uh, who not only loved the mention of garbage plates and their home hometown beer style, uh, but totally took me to task for skipping over the other famous company from the area, which Nikki mentioned, uh, Kodak. So, sorry. But I'm, I'm happy to give uh, Upstate New York a little bit of love for fostering and continuing to keep alive such an awesome style. And it still cracks me up, though, because, I mean, that was the very first episode we recorded of that. Yep. We just want to remind you that the uh, latest episode of The Brew Files is out there. As of February 7th, it's episode three, so go to experimentalbrew.com and check it out if you haven't already. Uh, keep Drew busy by suggesting new ideas for more Brew Files episodes so that he can spend as much time editing as I do. Uh, and uh, Well, that's only because I'm so much slower than you. <laughs> yeah, that's why you got the short show. Um, and once again, keep in mind that coming up in uh, two more episodes, uh, that's one more month, is uh, our all question and answer show. And we can't do it unless we have a lot of questions from you guys. So send them in questions at experimentalbrew.com. The sooner you get them here, the more time we have to do research and possibly give you a correct answer. Amen. Yeah. So, um, uh, we talked about our charity. Uh, we gave $683 to the Children's Tumor Foundation the last go-around, and that felt really good. And uh, maybe we can make $1,000 for the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. That's up to you guys. Go click on that Patreon link and donate whatever you feel like to help out those poochies. Yeah, we just need a couple more donors, and I think we'll be well on our way. Cool. 
So I guess it's uh, time to head over to the pub and have a beer now. Okay, if you insist. See, he always sounds like he doesn't really want to do it, but we all know different. Okay, we're going to take a quick break while we stroll over to the pub, and we'll be right back. Interested in making wine or mead? Don't settle for lesser yeast. Instead, use Vintner's Harvest. Just ask Tyler Barber from Adventures in Homebrewing, who says, Vintner's Harvest yeast is all I have used for the past four years. I've done several small test batches with Vintner's Harvest, and I really like the MA33 for meads and fruit wines. Vintner's Harvest seems to tailor their yeast strains to the styles of meads and wines the home Vintner is most likely to make. Find Vintner's Harvest yeast wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. sitting here in the experimental brewing pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town usa and we are drinking a couple beers well maybe only one a piece what are you having drew uh, i'm drinking a bell's hop slam uh famous old school beer that uh, bell's has been doing for a long period of time gathers crowds together and i was out the other day getting ready for a club meeting at my favorite liquor store hidden in boyle heights uh over here in LA and they had cans in the refrigerated section. I hadn't even realized Bell's was going to be bringing out Hop Slam. So I grabbed a couple of cans and now I'm here having one. And it's kind of interesting because it is a, it is definitely a different take on a hoppy beer than, you know, what I'm used to here on the West coast because it is uh, much more honeyed. Right. And kind of somewhere in, in that range of not quite a barley wine, not quite a double IPA type thing. Right, you know, and I was gonna, I was gonna mention that because I'm sitting here with a hoppy beer. Also, I'm having a a sticky hands from Block Fifteen Brewing in Corvallis, Oregon. An amazing beer. I mean, this has like expression of hops that you can't believe. Uh, I hear a rumor that they use some of the uh, new cryo hop powder from uh, YCH, and uh, I hope maybe to uh, to run that down and find out more about it. But this is an amazing beer. It's uh, 8.1%, which is stronger than I usually drink, but it's so delicious that I just can't help myself. Your mouth almost goes dry from all the lupulin <laughs> in the beer. Uh, it's an amazing beer. I love it. Uh, and uh, it's worth a trip for me to drive 45 minutes each way to go get some occasionally. Isn't that what you drive to get to the grocery store? Pretty much so. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but it is it is a really interesting comparison to the Hop Slam because they are such different takes on a hoppy beer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's it, I kind of thought that was a an odd coincidence. Yeah, really. Uh, what's uh, what's the interesting stuff we got to talk about? All right. Well, today I decided that we were going to talk a little bit about uh, homebrew and the law. Because, you know, it's one of my favorite topics, and obviously it's also one of our favorite topics of the American Homebrewers Association uh, that you and I both work with. Uh, you know, so there is an ongoing effort right now in Nebraska, uh, in the middle of the country, to deal with sort of recent changes to the rules, uh, or at least a recent change to the interpretation of the rules of the Nebraska State Liquor Code. And there's a bill right now in the Nebraska legislature, LB254, LB254, 
bingo, <laughs> uh, that, that would allow homebrewers to bring beer into festivals and charity events. Uh, kind of clarifies uh, language allowing homebrew at licensed facilities for meetings and events and competitions, and also really clarifies the ability for you or I to be able to remove beverages from that we've made from home to take to meetings. So reason why I wanted to highlight this is, you know, they're, they're just starting the, the efforts. The bill's been introduced into the legislature there in Nebraska. Uh, if you're in Nebraska, we'll include a link for you to be able to find information about the bill so you can talk to your representatives. If you're not within Nebraska, don't contact the, the legislature. That just sort of kind of cheeses them off. That's right. Uh, but here's the thing is that basically what happened was sometime last year for various reasons there are different rumors going around there are basically complaints filed into the nlcc complaining about home brewers effectively masquerading as pro brewers at things like festivals uh and some of it was people who were you know that great old thing i'm a brewery in planning pouring my beer at a festival which is the same thing that got us into trouble here in california and it's really the vast majority of the time that a liquor control agency is ever going to pay attention to homebrewers is somebody was masquerading around as a commercial venture to be able to raise awareness slash funding to be able to actually become a commercial venture. And because of those complaints, the NLCC went and took a look through their rules, basically, and said, oh, you know all this stuff that you've been doing? Not kosher according to the law. And so talking with folks uh, over in uh, Nebraska... I had never really realized just how deeply involved Nebraska homebrewers were in a lot of different festivals and a lot of different charity efforts. So some of the things that got uh, killed off this past year because of the, the reinterpretation of the rules were uh, Imperial, Imperial Ale's Beer Quest, uh, the Midwest Invitational, uh, an October uh, an Oktoberfest that was done for the Nebraska State Stroke Association, uh, the Great Nebraska Beer Festival. I mean, there's just all these different events where homebrewers were a core part of the festival that ended up either getting canceled or modified drastically because of these new rules that came into place. So here's the thing. The bill is there in front of the legislature. It's going to be debated. There's other bills that are in front of the legislature about beer that are being sponsored by uh, our good friends at ABI to basically say, hey, how come craft beer breweries get to have bars and we don't? Uh but make sure you read up. If you're in Nebraska, read up, get your information out there, pay attention. If you're not in Nebraska, the other reason why I wanted to mention this story is because this is the same sort of thing that happened to us here in California. It happened to Denny up there in Oregon. Uh, it, it keeps happening now that homebrews become and craft beer have become this thing. The states are starting to pay more attention to it. Right, they're starting to run into these cases where they're starting to see homebrewers on their radar and starting to go, "Hey, wait, no, no, you guys aren't allowed to do what what you've been doing just because you've been doing it. It's not how the law is written." So, as the as this is going on, I expect we're going to see more and more states pay attention to this, and more people need to pay attention and model their efforts in their legislatures against these same sort of efforts that you see in Oregon, in Michigan, in California, in Ohio, and other places, so that we can actually really kind of cement those homebrewer rights to do the things that we've been doing, and just nobody ever told us that we couldn't. We had a similar situation to Nebraska here in Oregon a few years ago, and uh, we had a sponsor in the uh, Oregon legislature who was a homebrewer, uh, my local senator, as a matter of fact, and... Uh, we uh, had our bill just sail through. It never got a no vote anywhere. So it proves that uh, 
you don't need to get upset. You don't need to scream at these people. Work with them, and uh, these things can be dealt with really efficiently and easily. Uh, I also want to mention something else, which is uh, just because you're incensed that this kind of thing is happening, if you don't live in Nebraska, don't get in on it. You'll have your chance if it comes to your state, but Nebraska legislators only want to hear from their Nebraska constituents. So uh, yeah. don't don't make them mad if you don't live in Nebraska. Stay out of the whole thing and uh, just just send good vibes. Yeah, but and also don't forget... Be a member of the AHA because the AHA helps support this sort of stuff. Yeah, and that's and that's something else I was going to mention. When we had our uh, our laws changed here in Oregon, uh, Gary Glass came out a couple times, and uh, the AHA was overall extremely helpful. So again, if you live in a state where you have uh, arcane, outdated brewing home brewing laws that uh, you want to see changed, get in touch with the AHA. They cannot instigate anything, but if you put together uh, a group to try and get the laws changed, they are a great help for you. Yep. And they, they, will, they, they have sample bills. They can show other efforts. They have numbers. And yeah, as Danny pointed out, Gary is more than happy to come to your state and testify. Yep, that's right. He's bored. He has nothing else to do. You know, what the heck? Yeah, nothing else. <laughs> All right. Well, and then on the other side, you know, just to show that this isn't just a U.S. problem, right? This is not just a unique thing about the homebrewers running afoul of U.S. laws. Right. Uh, last month, there was supposed to be a Belgian homebrewers conference in Belgium, a country that is notoriously easy to open a brewery in. Like, seriously, I think I could land in Belgium and two days later have a brewery running in my garage. Um they they were going to have a, a homebrewers conference, and they had to cancel it at the last minute. Now, if my translation is correct, and I'm not guaranteeing that it is because I'm me and I mostly speak English, uh, they basically ran afoul of the tax authorities. The, the same sort of uh, liquor control type activities there, where the commercial aspect of the festival, you know, it being a conference that they were taking the money to be able to pay the bills for and whatnot basically ran afoul of the fact that homebrew is not supposed to be sold. And it's the same sort of interpretation type stuff that we saw here in California. It's what you see in other places as well, where that magical line of what constitutes homebrew being sold, since that's really the crux around why we're allowed to do it. You know, what constitutes a sale of homebrew, you know, is kind of a sticky widget. Yeah, I know a lot of people out there try and get around the idea of, Oh, well, you know, I didn't sell my homebrew to these people. They donated ingredients to me, or they donated the money for the ingredients, or I have a tip jar on my on my fridge, etc. I'm not saying that the liquor control is ever going to give a damn about what you're doing when you're doing that, but if somebody wanted to make trouble for you, they could, because no liquor control agent out there is going to look at that and go, oh, yeah, no, you're right. That's totally a loophole that you can exploit. No, they're, they're <laughs> yeah, going to look right. at that as a sale. This just goes to show that, I mean, this sort of stuff is going on all around the world, and it's going to, it's going to get worse as people are starting to realize that homebrewers are out there doing this sort of thing. But again, to Denny's point in the earlier story, I mean, the truthfully, the tax authorities and the liquor control agents and whatnot, unless you're the sort of person who's going to sit there and yell about the revenuers, they're not really the enemy. They have a job to do. This is part of the job. And unfortunately, sometimes it gets in the way of us doing things that we consider to be fairly reasonable. So the moral of the story is, don't get upset. 
get the law on your side. Yeah, and what, what I discovered when we were dealing with it here was the people who have to enforce these laws feel like they're pretty much ridiculous, but they're there and it's their job and they have to do it. So don't get angry, just work with them and you can get it changed. And hopefully that will be happening in Belgium. I would love for them to uh, have a big homebrewers conference so they can invite us over for it, huh? Oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> if I could get invited to Belgium? Yeah. I'd be there in about two yeah, seconds. really, man. I, I I would just like transport somehow. Yeah, land speed record set. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. That, that's the that's the law and homebrew for today. There are other. St- I suspect we'll see other stories like this. You know, you're seeing some things where some of the states are raising ABV limits. I think Tennessee just raised max ABV to 10.1, but that's not really a homebrew story. In this particular case, I think as you start to see authorities pay more attention to the homebrewing hobby, because after all, craft brewing is growing and 90% of craft brewers are homebrewers or started as homebrewers. Uh, I think you're going to see more of that happening. And so don't get mad. Just pay attention and understand what the playbook is. Yep. That's it's just that easy. Okay, now that we've uh, talked about that and hopefully calmed everybody down and gotten them to work on getting things changed, it's time to wander over to the brewery and uh, talk about a new product that Drew ran across. So we'll be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. All right, hey, welcome to the brewery, you know, our fun little part where we just talk about some interesting things about either brew gear, brew ingredients, or other things that we may find. And today is a gadget. Because, <laughs> gadget indeed, it, man. This is one of the gadgetiest yeah. gadgets I've ever seen. Well, and I love gadgets, so whatever. And if you've, if you've ever heard me talk before, you know I have a big glass collection. I also have a big collection of bottle openers. Go figure. I think a lot of homebrewers out there are, uh, I would love to see a show of hands from people. Just drop us a line if you collect uh, bottle openers. But this new one that we saw is actually kind of a a throwback, and it's called the Eagle Cap-Off. And basically, it was a couple of guys, I think they're up in your neck of the woods in Oregon. Yeah, figures. And and they, uh, they ran across, there was a company in the 40s called Eagle Lock. In the 40s, Eagle Lock, for some strange reason, in addition to their normal business that they had been doing since the 1800s, decided to create a bottle opener. And it's this really cool little bottle opener that looks like a cap with two horns on top of it. And the, the cap is designed to slide over the bottle top. And then you just squeeze together the horns and it pops the cap right off. And But what's cool about it is it doesn't bend the cap. It very smoothly removes it because it's actually three moving parts inside. One of which is a plunger that goes in and sits it down on top of the cap. And then two lips that go down underneath the uh, the beer cap and pry up. So it lifts it all off as a single unit. 
And it's just a very cool thing. But these guys basically found these as like uh, very rare items on eBay and decided that they wanted to go and recreate them. And it took them a couple of years, but they finally have them up and available online now at eaglecapoff.com. And they're not paying us to mention this. I haven't gotten one of these yet. I'm seriously debating about it. The only thing that stops me from it is the expense of it because they are $58 a piece. How much? They're really cool. 58 $58 a piece. Okay. Yeah, but they're really cool bottle openers. And if you're if you're a bottle opener fetishist or something like that, uh, whatever, if you like to collect bottle openers, this is pretty rad. And it's, it's a pretty rad piece of old school engineering. And also, it really seems like you could buy one of these and pass it to your grandchildren type thing. <laughs> so hopefully your grandchildren like craft beer. I have to admit, it's uh, very intriguing looking, um, and uh, the way you describe the action is very interesting, and I think that I'll just stop there. <laughs> well, I, I didn't say it was for everybody, because no gadget ever is, but I did think that this was kind of uh, cool and interesting, and you know, kind of worthy of some talk, but it's at eaglecapoff.com. Like I said, uh, no uh, no kickbacks going on here, no discounts or anything. Just uh, I thought it was kind of a nifty thing and kind of made me laugh because it's like old school engineering tickles my funny bone. <laughs> yeah, well, go to eaglecapoff.com, check it out, see what you think, uh, see if it's something that uh, you might want to drop 58 bucks on. Uh, me, I think I would rather buy a few bottles of Belgian beer, uh, but that's me. What can I say? Okay. Indeed. That's just... <laughs> We're now going to head over to the lab and talk about uh, some of the experiments that we have in progress and coming up. So stick around and we'll be right back after this brief musical interlude. Y-Yeast is collaborating with homebrew icons and top-rated hobby podcasters, Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham, to bring you the Y-Yeast private collection strains for 2017. We're kicking off the year with some of our favorite British-style strains in honor of the Session Beer Project founded by Lou Bryson and Session Beer Day on April 7th in order to popularize and support the brewing and enjoyment of Session Beers. Beers that are 4.5% alcohol or less and crafted for easy drinking without compromising flavor. Look for Y-Yeast's 1026 British Cask Ale, 1768 English Special Bitter, and 1882 Thames Valley Ale 2, available January through March. We've made our way to the lab, and we're sitting here among the Bunsen burners and Jacob's ladders and all the extraneous brewing equipment, and we're going... Say what? <laughs> oh, that's, that's Drew doing his Jacob's ladder imitation. I'm impressed. Okay, so uh, the first experiment we have is uh, about uh, carbonating a keg. You want to talk about that one? 
Yeah, so we have this one in flight right now. Our Igors are actively doing this, uh, in addition to the other experiments we have going on. But there's a big debate about carbonation methods. So, And this isn't even about bottle conditioning versus uh, force carbonating, or keg conditioning, if you want. This is actually all on the methodology that you use when you're force carbonating with CO2. A lot of homebrewers are taught really sort of two methodologies. Uh, either put your beer in the keg, get it cold, Put your, uh, look up a number on the chart, you know, for your time, your temperature and everything else, stick the gas in, walk away and leave the keg hooked up to the gas for like two weeks, 10 days, whatever. Uh, the other one that a lot of homebrewers get taught is take your keg, take your gas, turn your gas all the way up to like 35 PSI or 40 PSI or however much you can hook it onto the gas, give it a quick shake and just slam as much gas in there as you can and shake it back and forth for a minute pull the gas, pull the pressure off the the top of the head and and allow the keg to settle and go. Now, the problem is that one of those methods takes a lot of time, uh, but it's very precise. The problem with the second method is it's very violent and very, very inaccurate, but it takes almost no time. And so I used to do the second one all the time because I'm not the sort of person who can ever wait two weeks for the the beer. That's the reason why I started kegging. Uh, And... I had a lot of super foamy beers for a while and I created my own methodology where I basically, I take the same pressure reading that you get off those tables for the two week method. And I actually add one PSI or two PSI to it, hook it up to a keg that's already cold. And then I shake it for 10 minutes and I just roll it back and forth on top of my chest freezer. Now that's what I do. And that's, that's how I've done my carbonation for years. But there are people out there who say, Oh, well, if you do any sort of force carbonating that involves agitation, you generate a lot of bubbles inside the keg and those bubbles basically take out your foam creating proteins, you know, your albumins and other things that give you your nice head. There's there's some evidence that says that, you know, Hey, you know, you only get one shot at using those proteins for making foam. So the theory is that, you know, doing any sort of agitated, uh, you know, sort of carbonation methodology will reduce the amount of heading that you get in your beer. So what we have asked the, uh, the Igors to do is to brew a double batch of one of their beer recipes that they like and basically do one of these via a modif- my modified slam and shake method and do another batch with the gentle methodology and then serve the both into a triangle test and see if people can tell a difference between the two beers. And I also ask them to observe the heading properties and foam properties of the beers to see if there are any observable differences. Uh, I'm going to be real interested to see the think, results Dave? of this one. Because I, 99% of the time, do the shaking method, and I have yet to find that there's anything wrong with doing that. Uh, but, you know, let, let's see what the, what the Igors come up with. Uh, I do the non-shaking method often enough to have a pretty good opinion of each one, so... Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. You know, there's 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 my opinion and there's doing an experiment. So we'll see if they converge at all. There you go. And guess what? Of course, if it if the experiment doesn't match your opinion, uh, yeah, that's you're still true. probably going to have your opinion. <laughs> that's what opinions are for. <laughs> so uh, another experiment that we have just had the Igor start in on. So it'll be a while before we report back. But we wanted to tell you about it. Uh, in uh, conjunction with our good friends and sponsors at Y-Yeast, we're trying to do something of a pitching rate experiment 
Ten of our Igors each received three packs of Wise 3787 Trappist High Gravity Yeast. And uh, they're going to brew 10 gallons of a triple wort, split it into two fermenters, put one pack into one half and two packs into the other half, and uh, and check out the results. Uh, so that's going to be a couple months away, but uh, that's in the works right now, so we wanted to mention it to you. Yeah, and we'll, we'll give you more details as to why we're doing that particular experiment uh, in a future episode uh, once we get all the parameters set. But, yeah, I just wanted to say uh, thanks, Yeast, for giving us 30 <laughs> yeah, packs really, of yeast man. for Yeah, really, man. You guys rock. We really appreciate it. And uh, I guess while we're here in the lab and talking about experiments, we might as well mention at uh, HomebrewCon this summer in Minneapolis, we are going to be doing a seminar in conjunction with Marshall Schott and Malcolm Frazier from uh, Brewlosophy. So all four of us will be there talking about uh, how we set up experiments, how we analyze the experiments, and uh, answering questions from you. And we really want to have a lot of questions. So if you're going to HomebrewCon this summer, please come by our seminar and pepper us with embarrassing questions. Or even non-embarrassing questions, you know, we're, we're fine with not being embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, so. right. Well, the embarrassing part will be when we're all looking at each other going, God, I don't know. Okay, so, so much for the lab here. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be listening to Drew talking to Frank Clemens of Flatland Brewing in Fargo, North Dakota. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Alrighty, we are here in the lounge because it's time for an interview. Uh, Drew made a trip to Fargo, North Dakota a couple months ago, and one of the people he talked to while he was there was Frank Clemens of Flatland Brewing. Yeah, so uh, I got to go out to Fargo, uh, courtesy of the Prairie Homebrewing Companions, uh, to go speak at and help judge their uh, Hoppy Halloween competition, which was a uh, very fun time. And... Of course, me being me and me flying anywhere, I I get to take trips you know so rarely that I basically try and pack as much as I possibly can because vacation is not for sleeping, vacation is for doing, uh, which is pretty much the story of my life. So we literally rolled off the plane. I left L.A. at like 5 o'clock in the morning, rolled off the plane in Fargo, and was picked up immediately by my sponsor there, uh, Tom, who then drove us out to West Fargo to go hang out at 
Flatlands Brewing Company for a little bit of time uh, before we wandered on to more adventures. And I got a chance to talk with Frank Clemens. Now, the really cool part about this brewery is, I mean, it's in a the ground level retail space of a brand new apartment complex as Fargo is expanding out that way. And it's, I mean, it's just a little, you know, little microbrewery that is part of a living community. And the other thing that I thought was fantastic was, I mean, they'd barely been open for any real structured time, but they'd already had a real community built up and their beers were, uh, were singing along really excellently. And it was also, it set, it helped set the tone for the trip because the beer I think I had there that really stuck with me the most was uh, an Irish red ale that they have. And it was a style that, well, I mean, it used to be a more popular craft beer style until the hops took over. And I haven't seen an Irish red ale that wasn't a hop bomb out here on the West Coast in I don't know how many yeah, years. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because just yesterday I had my first uh, Irish red ale in a long, long time from Cold Fire Brewing here in Eugene. And you know what? One of the reasons I liked it was because it was a pretty hoppy Irish red ale. So uh, <laughs> I guess the, the my answer is no, it has been a long time since I've seen one that wasn't hoppy. Yeah, well, anyway, I liked it, and it was a nice change of pace. And it really did set a, a mood for a great trip, and Fargo, uh, Fargo and my host there were fantastic. And, I mean, hey, it was before Halloween, so it wasn't even all that cold, <laughs> but beer was still good. So let's go off in the let's go listen to uh, uh, Frank and I talk uh, over there at Flatland Brewing Company. And if you're ever in Fargo, uh, go and pick up a Fargo map. They have all their breweries on there. And I'm kind of horrified that Fargo has more breweries than <laughs> Pasadena, California. It says more about Pasadena you know than Fargo, huh? Yeah, it does. Well, Pasadena was founded as Dry Town. So, yeah. Okay, grab yourself a beer, sit back and relax, and let's listen. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I am sitting here currently at uh, Flatland uh, Brewing in uh, Fargo, North or West Fargo. Correct. North Carolina. Sorry. We have to make sure that we get the uh, geography correct you know, <laughs> because uh, it's important. Geography matters because that's part of the reason why you opened uh, over here, right? Because of geography. Yes. All right. So uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself to the audience? Okay, I'm Frank Clemens. I'm with uh, I'm the head brewer uh, with Flatland Brewery here. And how long have you been brewing? Uh, professionally, since we opened in July, uh, and I was a home brewer before that, and I home brewed for about eleven years. All right. Well, so let's get uh, let's get started with one of my favorite questions. What is your favorite curse word? Oh, geez, uh, that's there's so many good. I don't know. I, I do say a lot. You, uh, I think. Uh, but I heard you said horse hockey on the last podcast that right. I listened to. I like that a lot. I was thinking of incorporating that more. Yeah, I, I, that, that shows my age in listening to uh, or watching a lot of MASH when I was a kid. <laughs> um, but you, you are in very good company with the uh, F word. There are, <laughs> I think that's about 95% of the people. <laughs> All right. So. Go ahead and let's uh, let's get the biographical details out of the way. So, yeah, how did you get into brewing? What drove you into it? And then what finally made you do the stupid thing of opening up a professional brewery? Sure. Uh, so when I started home brewing, uh, it was 2006, early 2006. And then uh, I had just graduated from college. I basically needed a hobby. I had just started getting into good beer. Uh, but at that time, especially around here, there just were not very many options. Um, 
so uh, it seemed I also have always loved cooking and and that sort of thing putting together uh, food recipes uh, whatever of the, uh, so I decided that uh, I wanted to pick up uh, brewing I was working at, at Barnes Noble at the time and right next to the information desk where I'd work was the the cooking section and right next to the uh, the kiosk was the brewing books so I'd walk by them every day multiple times a day and so I started perusing them and decided to pick one up so I picked up Charlie's book and uh, decided to just have a go at it um, so and that was almost immediately uh, well immediately I fell in love I knew I wanted to do it uh, I had a good friend or have a good friend who's actually one of my partners in the company now who I immediately got a hold of him and said, you have to come over the next time I do this, and uh, you'll love this. So we brewed together a lot. Uh, I don't know, hundreds of batches we brewed together uh, early on. Well, so let's see. So you started brewing. Now, how how long did it take you to get to your first, say, 10 batches under your belt? Oh, uh, probably, well, five months. I think we were brewing every other week at that time. So, and then we, we actually ramped up for a while. We were brewing usually once a week for a good period of time. And what drove that once a week? I mean, was it just a desire to create? Desire to do it. Yeah. Try new stuff. Uh, you know, make, uh, I don't think we repeated a recipe for uh, a couple of years. I mean, we just wanted to keep trying different things and we were, we were working on developing, I guess, recipes but we never went back to brew the exact same thing again for quite a while and do you remember what your first homebrew was uh it was a pale ale i was uh i got converted to beer in general and definitely good beer uh in england and i drank a lot of bass so that was sort of my introduction to good beer so we uh it was definitely a british style just pale ale and what and what were you doing over in uh england I was there on choir tour in college. Okay, well, there we go. And then bass, and so that's a very classic combination. Getting into the pale ale, uh, and what was your what was your college degree in, if I can ask? M- uh, music. Ah, not actually a computer person. Because <laughs> I mean, you know the demographics, right? I mean, it's and this hobby is so strongly engineer based. Yep, it's almost ridiculous. So yeah, all right. So we have a, a musical guy. So. Then that begs the question, do you see a recipe as music? Do you see it as a, a sheet? Uh, kind of, yeah. I mean, I, it, it, and I definitely look at it, I think, try to more from a creativity standpoint. Um, I mean, certainly all the science and hard facts are interesting, but I like just creating the flavor profile more than, more than the science and engineering end of it. Okay, do you remember... When you started homebrewing, what was the first beer that you did that made you go, wow, there's actually something to this that, like, you were really, really proud of it, and it felt like your own creation? Uh, The first, well, the very first one actually uh, felt really good, but I think the first one that really struck home was my first all-grain batch, which was uh, an American pale ale, uh, kind of modeled after Sierra Nevada, Mm -hmm. and and that was the first time that I felt like I'd had full control over the process since before that it had all been extract beers. So there's always a element of not really mine, I mm-hmm. guess. Well, and how, how many batches in was that all grain? 
that was about a year, I think, into into brewing. Mm -hmm. I switched over. And it was just finally like, I, I need to do this the, the full way. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to have the full ability to control the full ingredient lists because when you're working with, especially, I mean, the pale extracts, I think, are pretty straightforward, just pale malt. But when you get into the ambers and the darks and mm -hmm. other stuff, you don't really know exactly what they're putting in there. And, and so you only have a certain level of control. Yeah, and if Breeze changes their, their rye formula, then your recipe changes and whatnot. Right. Yeah, and, and I mean, that was the reason why I, <clears throat> when I was doing extract beers, and I did extract beers for, I think, the first six batches of beer I did, and then I went nuts because <laughs> I'm me, obviously. <laughs> and uh, my sixth batch of beer was when I did my first all-grain. And... But I remember for those first six batches, it was still the, the advice that was always given to me was ignore all the old recipes that have like a stout extract or use a amber extract. Use pale, get your color with grains. That way, if you do go all grain, you're kind of, kind of somewhat set. Right. All right. Um, so now you were homebrewing for, you said you started in 2006? Yeah. So I, it was by the time we opened, uh, you know, we kept homebrewing up until basically a month before we opened so i guess it was about 10 and a half years at what point in time did your home brewing become commercial research brewing uh very specifically when we signed the business papers in march 2015 <laughs> um we knew we had a number of recipes that we had already been working on that we knew we wanted to use or at least that were close enough that we could reasonably develop them but nope. I, uh, I'd been working on the red ale for, well, since very early. After, after I brewed a first couple batches of pale ale, I decided that what I really wanted to perfect was a red ale. So that one. Well, and, and I have the red, uh, for listeners, I actually have a nice flight of beer uh, in front of me. Or actually, I should say uh, five beers and a soda. And Correct. We'll get to the sodas in a bit. Uh, and, yeah, the, I mean, the Irish red, I mean, you've got that. It has a really wonderful toast quality to it uh and i mean it's on the paler side of the reds which is fine if you and if you see you're looking at it in a smaller yeah. glass if you put it in actual pine glass like, it, it well, has it a good red awesome. color which getting the color right was a huge part of it uh well and, and what, I, what i also appreciate about it is it's it's toasty and it's dry and it's not like a lot of the reds that you can have that either have uh, sort of a lingering roast note uh, because people like do a, a dash of black black patent to get the red, or the other thing it's lacking is sort of big caramel sweetness because that's the other thing people do a lot of big caramel. Right. So can you can you tell us what you do in order to in order to dial in this Irish red? What, what you're doing right now? Yep, it is uh, pretty simple. I mean, as far as the grains, it's uh, base two row, and then we use uh, caramel sixty and a small amount of roasted barley, and that's it. Well, see, and, and then you have everything kind of in good ratios because yep. none of the, n neither the caramel nor the roast barley are, are showing themselves as high. Right, yeah. Uh, so that, that's actually really, really nice. Um, all right, so now that we've talked about one of your recipes and what you, how it works, uh, we have to get to the hard question. Okay. So omitting the word balance, describe your brewing philosophy. Variety. I, I like, again, with creativity, I'm always trying new stuff. I've brewed a number of beers here that I had never brewed before uh, in just 
working to um, extend what we have available and what 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 flavors we have. So variety, uh, you know, we've we've worked to have we've got eleven regular tap beers and two casks on right now, mm-hmm. plus the soda. So we're working to get a really you know solid examples of whatever style it is we're brewing, but you know unique to ours and. But we, uh, I think out of our taps, we're going to probably have five that are year-round, mm-hmm. and then the rest of them are going to be rotating, seasonal, so one-off. What do, you, what do you think your 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 solids are going to be, your core? Uh, right, the, 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 the red. The red, for sure. Uh, our IPA, mm-hmm. uh, probably the Rogan, which you have there. Yep. Uh, and then we've got an oatmeal stout that we actually don't have on tap right now we sold out it's fermenting i have it fermenting again in fact it's carbonating right now but i just don't quite have it back we, we, we get, get a pigtail out let's uh, let's get some, uh, get some <laughs> another glass no um well i was gonna say so i am looking and right now you have a really nice collection of beers up here on tap so and what you this is what month three, three. month yeah. three how, how many different styles of beer do you think you've gone through in the in the first three months? Oh, well, we initially brewed seven styles, and then we rebrewed seven different styles, so that's fourteen. And then we've had probably two or three others, so I'd say we're close to sixteen different styles in two months, okay. three months, and. I totally forgot we need to set the stage for everybody. I mean, so uh, we're here in West Fargo. We are actually in a, I guess for lack of a better word, a restaurant slash retail type space below uh, a set of modern apartment buildings. You know, so we got apartments uh, right above us, and the whole brewery is basically set up right in here. And I'm trying to, no kitchen, right? This is just. No. So no kitchen, just a brew with a you know a forest of chairs for a tap room, uh, with trivia and live music and other things coming. How big? How big is your system in terms of volume? Three barrel. So uh, we're kind of in a nano esque scale. Yeah. So that's kind of cool, and, and I think probably actually fairly appropriate for uh, for the space that we're in because I don't think you could fit a bigger system in here. No, we looked at a seven. I've got two seven barrel fermenters for double batching into, but. I think to get a full seven barrel system in here would be kind of tight. And so what are you double batching right now? Uh, we double batched, originally we double batched our blonde ale and our uh, American pale ale. And we've double batched uh, the oatmeal stout. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be double batching the red ale. We've double batched the red ale already. But so those core five beers are probably what we'll be double batching the most. Um, we've already had good success with a couple of our seasonals. We had a raspberry blonde mm-hmm. for the summer. Uh, that will be double batching for sure next year. That was highly popular. And our uh, Marzen style Oktoberfest beer. Uh, the o- also. O- Oktoberd Fest? Yep, our Oktoberd Fest. <laughs> so we'll be double batching that next year. That's been pretty popular too. Now, I was going to say, how, how many beards are in the. Uh... <laughs> Zero is my to my knowledge. Well, in the beer, but how many beers oh, are in the business? In the business, hmm. Well, uh, right now there's only two. Uh, one of the guys shaved his, so three out of the three out of the six. Shouldn't that be part of like the partnership agreement or something? I don't know. Actually, they tried to write it in that I had to keep my beard, but 
Well, and again, for the listeners who, uh, you guys will see this when I post pictures uh, for the podcast, but yeah, Frank's sitting here rocking, uh, rocking the brewer's beard. <laughs> and, you know, kind of keeping it, keeping it real. It's a yeast trap. Um, so, you know, actually, I, I, it just occurred to me. I don't think we've ever talked on the podcast about double batching and how that works at a, at a commercial brewery level. Okay. So can you just go ahead and give the listeners like an elementary lesson about what we, when somebody says, hey, uh, doubled up tanks, you know, what's actually sure. happening? Well, ba- the most, you know, basically we're, we're brewing the same beer twice right in a row and putting it in the same fermenter. So we start in the morning, we do our normal mash in, uh, and, and, as it's mashing, then we're already getting ready for the next batch. We're getting the next batch of grain measured out and ground. Um, we get extra water back into our hot liquor tank to make sure that we have enough hot water for the day. And uh, and then as soon as we're done running the first batch out of the boil kettle, we give it a quick rinse just to get all the nasties out of the, mm-hmm. the big chunks out. And then we immediately start running the... Uh, we try to have the second mash going as we're starting the runoff of the first batch. And then as soon as we're done with the boil and rinsed out, we run our our second mash uh, runoff right into the kettle. And then we brew the same beer immediately. And then we run, it, run, run that into the same fermenter. And then we pitch a double volume of yeast, basically. And Well, and I know there are some... Uh, some breweries, I'm not only doing double, but triple or quadruple batches. Yep. And what you see sometimes that, that I think is kind of a clever technique is, you know, <clears throat> we always get worried as homebrewers about yeast growth and how 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 much volume of yeast we're pitching and you know yeast calculators. Um, but I know I've seen a number of breweries out there. What they'll do is they'll say they may be doing a double shift in a day, right? Yep. But they do one batch, one style of beer in the morning, and then they start a second style of beer in the evening, and that goes into the tank, and they pitch a single volume of yeast in there, and they let that ferment overnight, you know, kind of using it as like a big starter, and then the next day they come in, and they do the the second batch, and push that in, and that goes into the tank and just basically takes advantage of the yeast that's already there that's right. at high crossing. Yep. So there are a couple of different techniques to it, but uh, really from the homebrew scale, you can kind of think of it as if you had, let's say, for instance, you only had uh, your capacity with something like a Pico Brew Zymatic that has two and a half gallons uh, as a brew length, right? And you go, you take that into your into your carboy, your bucket or whatever, and immediately, as soon as you're done, you're starting on the second batch so that you get fresh wort right on top of your yeast or in, in, in with the rest of the wort. Yeah. <clears throat> so... Uh, yeah, I think I mean, it's a really interesting way that breweries do a lot to sort of stretch their capacity in terms of their, their systems because fermenters are relatively cheap. The brew deck is relatively freaking expensive. <laughs> yes, for sure. So, and you also do save, I mean, you save a little bit of labor as far as, you know, when, from, from another cost perspective. When we double batch, it takes us about uh, 80% of the labor for the brew day, for the brewing, as it does if we brew a single batch, so we're saving. And 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 don't discount that twenty percent uh, savings because the beer business, the brewing business, is a margin of pennies. Yep, and our labor is definitely our highest input cost as far as the. So I know there are, I know there are four partners, right? Is that, yeah, there's four active 
partners with us. Now, how, how many how many people are here actively working? Uh, well, of the active members, there's three of us three of us who actively work, and then we've got one um, passive partner who does work actively, but he do, he just doesn't have management rights or whatever. So. And is there are there any other employees, or is it just really three of you? Yeah, we've got. When we first started, it was just us. We did hire uh, one of the partners' uh, wife uh, as our bar manager, and then another girlfriend to just because with only four guys, it's a lot to deal with. But we're up to now, I think I counted the other day, we've got six or seven employees. See, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, and this this is the reason why I think, you know, you can go and, you know, you can, local, you can argue with your local government about, hey, you know, why is it a good idea to open a brewery? And you say, look, I mean, you know, pretty rapidly it grows into a little business that actually employs a little army of people. Yep. And our, our local government was very excited when we approached them uh, they definitely uh, didn't have any apprehension about having us here at all they they wanted us they said they've they had had a lot of comments as to why they hadn't gotten someone to open a brewery in west fargo yet can, can i import them to pasadena <laughs> well we were talking before we started recording that so in the past couple of weeks obviously I, I live in pasadena i was just in vancouver washington and now i'm here in fargo all three cities are relatively the same size. Pasadena is the largest, you know, just because it's a suburb of LA. But here in Fargo, you guys currently have five operating breweries in the in the Fargo area, right? Uh, and uh, like a six to come online. And in Vancouver, they had something like nine. And in Pasadena, we have one, and it doesn't even have a tap room because the guy who runs it opened it up in 1996, and he's cranky. Um, I love him to death, but he's cranky. So let's let's talk a little bit about the, that sort of thing because I mean, yeah, we are over here in West Fargo, which is a distinct, different unit of the metropolis than just Fargo and everything else. And I think uh, what we were talking earlier that this is a kind of a growing area. Absolutely, the down right where we're at in town is the fastest growing area of town. I think at at this time, and it's. You look across the street here, there's all these apartment buildings that you can see. I don't, when we started this last year, none of those were there. And, and you've got the big hospital that's coming in. And yeah, and I'm pretty sure that's why everyone is developing here so quickly as this hospital is large. I think I heard they're going to employ something like three or 400 just nurses. Well, and given the size of that building, 300 or 400 nurses seems actually kind of small. Yeah. And so it's a massive building. But then there'll be doctors and all kinds yeah. of other staff to go with that. So, so I don't know what the total employment number at this building is, but it's it's going to be massive. So you guys are are perfectly primed for you know for this sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, and that's good, and, and that makes sense why the uh, the local government would be like, hey, you know, look, we are in a grow, growth area. Now we are in a growth area. We need to have these industries, and craft beer does really attract a sort of a more upscale crowd in a lot of ways. Yeah, so. and, yeah, and I mean a lot of there, there, there were four before now, and, and West Fargo being the fastest growing of all the areas, I think people just couldn't figure out why someone hadn't come over here yet. Well, and, and now here you are, but uh, you live in the area. I live in Fargo. One of the partners lives in West Fargo. Ah, that's right. When we first started, uh, that was the question as to where where to start, and 
Uh, of course, the guy who lived here in West Fargo or lives here in West <laughs> Fargo definitely wanted to start over here, but he pitched a good argument that there isn't anything over here. And as we talked to more and more people, especially people in West Fargo, the common theme was we like going to the breweries, but they're so far away. Right. We want something closer to home because you don't want to drive 20 minutes one way to go drink a bunch of beer when you can drive five minutes to one of the local bars. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's one of the reasons why I always think, you know, I mean, I get puzzled a lot when looking at the craft beer picture, like the number of places where it's like, oh, look, you know, we're growing super large, right? You know, we're massive expansions and all that. And really to me, it seems like the the real the real sort of attraction of a lot of craft beer is the fact that this is my local. I know you, right? I know the person who's ending up with the money that I'm handing across the bar to go get a glass of beer and I have a chance to talk to you. I get a, get a chance to talk with the person who's creating this product. And so, yeah, I mean, I totally, I totally get that idea of like, hey, you know, let's, let's provide a local nexus. So now do you know, is there anybody else coming up in the area or any rumblings of others? Um, there's the one that's set to open mm, probably a mile uh, east of us. I think they're shooting for December. I, I've heard rumblings of someone else working on one, but I haven't talked to anyone about any specifics, so I don't know how real that is. And then there is another another guy who was trying to open in Fargo, and he's actually opening in a smaller town west of here about uh, 15 miles or so in Mapleton. Um, and he'll be open. I'm not sure. I haven't talked to him in a while. See, and, and of course, I always have to recalibrate distances because, I mean, living in L.A., distance is sort of a weird thing, right? Because it's really more about traffic. And it seems like here, the distance isn't as, as important as much as the weather distance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or at least maybe that's just me going, I don't like driving in the snow. So I can't, like, to your point, like driving 20 minutes to go get beers and then coming back, to me, like, in the height of winter, that seems even like a worse idea. Oh, yeah. So, um, all right. Well, hey, why don't, we, why don't we talk, since you were kind enough to provide the flight of beers here, and we talked at the the style question, your blooming philosophy question. Uh, why don't you walk us through the Rogan that you have? Okay. That's a Rogan beer. It's a German style. Uh, we chose that as a, an alternative to barley beer, mainly because no one in town was really doing a rye. Uh, so we decided that it's... Yeah. I mean, it's, Rogan's basically a Hefeweizen rye. Yep, yep. It's just, yeah, it's Hefeweizen made with, with rye instead of wheat. But I think it adds an extra uh, depth to the spiciness. Mm-hmm. really backs up that flavor profile. Well, I was going to say, yeah, you have that kind of clove phenol that you would expect out of, like, a cooler fermentation from some of the, the Hefe's. Yep. But then you've got that sort of long, lingering back dryness that, that I think of from, from rye. Yep. Uh, and was there a particular drive for rye, or is it just because different? Different than wheat. I mean, everyone in town has a wheat, and you know we do. We have a Berliner Weiss, but that's a little bit different as a wheat beer. But uh, yeah, we just wanted to do something as an alternative grain beer that was just going to be different than what everyone else in town was doing. There you go. All right, now let's let's jump to the beard. Okay, the October Fest. That's a pretty uh, standard. Marzen style uh, Oktoberfest uh, not lagered for as long as I would have liked but I think it turned out pretty good um, next year I'll brew it earlier but just the limitation of when we got our brewer's notice compared to when we needed the beer ready limited mm-hmm. me but now, 
Is that is that using an actual like Munich strain? It is not. It's actually just uh, Chico. Is it okay? Yeah, but yeah. I, I think it turned out. You know, we 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 fermented at sixty eight, which is pretty neutral flavor mm -hmm. profile in my opinion, and then the the lagering even with the short amount of time, kind of cleaned it up. Yeah. So now. All the beers here, I mean, are you all on like 1056 or do you have multiple strains? We have three strains that we're running with. We use the, the Chico uh, and then we also use a Henley on Thames or Thames Valley mm -hmm. in Y East. And then we also have the, the Hefe East for the Rogan. And yeah, by the way, the, uh, the Henley is one of my favorite English yeast. Yeah. I just think that that's such a good strain. Yeah, we did some experimenting early on, sort of as. Um, in this process, you know, brew the same beer. Actually, it was before we started, we were looking at the company, but just brew the same beer and then use different yeasts and see. And yeah, the, the Henley, the Thames was the one we came up with as the one we liked by far the most out of the, we did like the London Ale and the ESB and Ringwood, I think. Yeah, I, I'll be happier the, the fewer people who are using Ringwood. But that's <laughs> that's my own personal bias. Because, uh, I mean, I grew up on the East Coast, and so a lot of, like, the old-school Northeast breweries who are all kind of set up by uh, Alan Bugsley or with his consulting all use Ringwood. And very few of them use Ringwood in such a way that it's not like a diastole bomb. It makes me want to just go, no, stop, please, I don't want to drink your beer. So now... When you have more time to do the beard fest, are you going to do it with a lager strain, or are you we're looking at it? You know, the, the, for me right now, it's just another strain that I have to keep alive mm -hmm. and store somehow. So well, and time in your tanks. So. Yeah, so it's sort of right. I, we chose the Chico because I didn't at that time. We don't. We didn't have a plan to keep a lagering yeast running. So, and I did some research and came up with i mean originally traditionally the oktoberfests would have been brewed with ale yeast anyway so it's just more traditional we we're going way back i'm, I'm more <laughs> traditional than your tradition you traditional buggers <laughs> yeah all right so i don't know we'll see but for sure we'll, we'll be brewing it in march well i was gonna say year. how much uh, how much would a three barrel pitch of yeast for a lager strain if you were just doing it as a one-off cost you uh, i think most of ours cost around 170 or so it depends on the gravity of the beer and so in a three-barrel system, I mean, that's adding a fair yeah. cost to, uh, to per pint. Yeah, it would be the, the largest expense of everything for sure at that point would be the would be the yeast. So, the, This is why the rules for commercial brewing are different than home brewing. <laughs> All right, let's go to the brown porter that you poured me here. All right, brown porter is uh, British style. It's kind of in between a brown ale and a more modern... Uh, robust porter so it doesn't have any black patent malt but it's still uh, heftily darkened with caramel malt uh, we used caramel 80 mm -hmm. and caramel 20 i believe both in combination well and, and this one you have sort of a nice restrained fruitiness but there's also that little bit of a little touch of diacetyl that for a beer style is not a bad thing right, right. yeah and i think that actually the diacetyl or diacetyl if you're going to be um, I, I, grew, I grew up saying diacetyl as a brewer, and so even though I know it's supposed to be diacetyl, I can't break the habit. <laughs> and every time I say it, I go, true. Um, <laughs> but the, 
the diacetyl in this case, I think, actually gives you a nice little buffer up against some of those roast characters that come through in the finish. Yeah. Makes it a little more complex. And then uh, we actually, I, I don't usually, in most of my British styles, I don't add a lot of, if any, late edition hops. Mm -hmm. Um, except for maybe pale ales, but I did add some to this, which I think adds some of the fruity flavor. I yeah. like. Well, and, and and how strong is that? That's like five point four, according to the board. Then it's five point four. There you go. <laughs> TTB, pay no attention to anything else. It's five point four percent. Yeah, and I mean that's actually kind of a dangerous five point four because I think you could you could neck a full glass of that fairly quickly. Yes, you can. And, you know, like me in my brain, I'd go, oh, brown porter, okay, so that's going to be a little bit softer. I can totally drain one of those. Next thing you know, I'll be on the ground. Um, <clears throat> all right, and then let's talk the uh, fresh hop IPA. Okay, that's our, uh, we got some fresh hops. We took our normal IPA recipe, and uh, it just so happened we had, we had it fermenting, and about two days before I was going to dry hop it, a local farmer called and said he had a bunch of, fresh hops if I wanted any and he's getting started in the industry but doesn't he he's on his second year I think so he's got so he's not he's not full yield yet yeah so he's got some so he hasn't invested in any harvest equipment or any processing equipment he's oh, just God. still waiting to yeah he's sort of rolling until next year when he knows that he's going to make money and so and if you've never grown hops yourself and you harvesting hops is a giant pain in the butt <laughs> So yeah, he asked if I wanted any, so I told him we'd take, I did the math to kind of convert it out, and mm -hmm. 15 pounds is what I needed of fresh hops to equal about the same amount, I figured, of dry. So he, I said, if you can get them to me in two days, I'll put them in this beer I have fermenting. Mm -hmm. So he went out and harvested, and yeah, he got here, he was about three hours late, I think, because that took him a lot longer to harvest than he expected, so... Um, but yeah, we got them that day and dropped them in. Um, but it's uh, an American IPA uh, mm -hmm. base. It's uh, CTZ and Cascade hops, and and then the fresh hops were the fresh hops were CTZ. CTZ, okay. Yeah. So Normally, I do a combo of CTZ and Cascade in the dry hopping, but he didn't have any Cascade, so so hey. Well, and what I do like here and. This may be a side effect of only using them as dry hops and not in the kettle like a lot of people do. Is I think a lot of fresh hop beers get a strong green character, that chlorophyll character that kind of runs through them and uh, really sort of makes them go, okay, that's interesting, but I don't want to drink a whole hell of a lot of it. And here, I think, with just the fact that you just have it in there as the dry hop, you're getting, you're getting more herbal notes out of the hops than I would expect out of CTZ. Sure. And I, yeah, I found I really like it as a dry hop. I mean, that's what I use in my normal, normally, like I said, and it just gets, I don't know, more grapefruity, I guess, normally. It's definitely a different fresh. Yeah. And I mean, you still have, I mean, you have a little herbal, a little plant character in the background of it, but it, that only really comes through in the finish. But, it, you know, and it's not that sort of big, dank, weedy type thing. So, Definitely smelled that way when we had 15 pounds of hops sitting here on the... <laughs> well, unfortunately, no suspicious police officers driving by. Yep. What's happening? <laughs> All right. And then, obviously, we have to go to the, the thing I think is 
something that you're doing different than a lot of breweries that, that I see out there. Uh, I have in front of me a cream soda. So it, why, why are you doing sodas in a brewery? Because, you know, hey, beer. And then tell us about the, the soda itself. Sure. Well, the, for one, I mean, we just, uh, going along with the craft beverage idea, not just limiting ourselves to beer, we wanted to do uh, unique sodas that, uh, I don't know, I guess I feel like you get a lot of standardized flavors in soda right now, and every company does their own, basically their own take on, I don't know, five or six sodas, and you don't get a lot of variety. And a lot of them, I think, aren't, aren't great. Um, but... Uh, we also wanted to have uh, a non-alcoholic alternative, and rather than just offering, you know, cans of Coke or whatever, we wanted to have something that we made as well. So, uh, and we're already set up with all the equipment. It's basically the same process. You're just not fermenting it. Mm-hmm. We usually just take, you know, some amount of flavoring uh, compound, or it's, you know, herbs or spices or whatever we're using, and then you heat water, add sugar, and... Mm-hmm let it boil or steep and then run we just run it straight into the bright tanks and carbonate it immediately but um and then this this is a maple cream soda we actually uh the all the sugar is from maple syrup in this uh we've got some friends out in minnesota that uh do that have a maple grove and we've gone out and helped them harvest uh syrup the last two or three years so i was wondering why this tastes different to me because it's not it's not that same sweetness that I normally think of with a lot of cream sodas. Uh, I mean, you, you still have that very strong vanilla character yeah. and, you know, all the things that would make you say cream soda, but then you do kind of have this sort of <clears throat> earthier sugar character. Yeah. Or, uh, and I don't want to say smoky because I, it, I don't think it's smoky so much. It's, yeah, it's somewhere between smoky and earthy, and it's, and, and it's also softer. Which is nice. Well, and I, I definitely went for, I mean, it's still sweet. I mm-hmm. mean, it's soda, but I also, I'm not a huge fan of highly sweet drinks, so I, I wanted it to be backed off, and that's what a lot of people say when they come in. Well, I don't like cream soda. It's usually too sweet, and a lot of people end up liking it because it is a little less sweet. I mean, it's still definitely sweet, but it's not. And are, are you getting the, the cream soda flavors from a commercial extract, or are you making vanilla cream? Vanilla beans. Just vanilla beans with yeah. the, the sugar? Yep. A little bit of salt, a little bit of cream and tartar. Awesome. Any other soda variants on that, that you're playing with? Um, we don't have anything on right now, but we are. We have a lavender cream soda that we make with honey uh, that we'll be having hopefully in the not-too-distant future. Uh, we're still working on a root beer. Um, that's proven to be more complicated than we originally thought. Uh, just because... There are a lot of flavor components in root beer. Didn't okay. really realize when we started just how complicated it, it is. So, yeah, and your vanilla, you got your your mints, your, your yeah, uh, your, your various barks. <laughs> yeah, cinnamon. We're using sarsaparilla root as our as mm-hmm. our root. Um, so we're getting close. We've, we're finally to the point where you can drink a glass. <laughs> what? That's a good. Start. But uh, part of the reason why I want to talk about the soda is. I've been a big proponent for a few years now, at least amongst the homebrew club level. You know, like, we get a lot of people like, oh, look, I want to go to a beer festival and pour my homebrew. And to me, that's like, okay, yeah. I mean, to me, yeah, I totally get it. You know, I understand the appeal. Like, I get to play 
you know, growing up brewer for a little while. But a lot of times with, you know, like a big beer festival, the last thing in the universe they need is more beer. And one of the, one of the places where I think homebrewers can actually provide a an alternative and a charitable effort and actually an additional dimension to the festival is by providing, I always jokingly refer to it as our refreshing tonic bar. Because <laughs> I always go for lower sugar, uh, lower sugar sodas. Uh, because really it's a good palate cleanser to give a break. And it's a time when a homebrew can actually be of service to a fest director. You know, a fest director doesn't care about it if you have more homebrew or more beer to pour because he's already got a bunch of that. But if you can bring in an alternative, that's really nice. And so it's nice to see that you're doing the same thing here by having the, the flavorful alternative that isn't just a, another commercial product. Yeah. And we, I mean, we conceptualize it as just having it as a nice, you know, NA alternative for driver or someone who just doesn't like beer or drink beer. But we've had a lot of compliments and people even say, you know, I'm a, I'm a recovering alcoholic and I never would have come there with my friends. But now that I know you have sodas, that means I have something interesting to drink Mm -hmm. that I can try. Uh, And we've actually had a lot of uh, pregnant wives who come in with their husbands and, you know, they are glad that they have something that's not just a water or just a diet coke or whatever you know to drink that they can they can they be part of trying something yeah, they can be part of the experience yeah they they and they can take advantage of like what we were talking about that that opportunity to have the experience of being handed over something over the bar by the person who's made it or a person closely tied right. to the making of it yeah that, and that's totally true so that's awesome all right, uh, moving on. Let's see. And thank you so much for, by the way, the spread of beers. That, that oh, yeah. was awesome. Absolutely. It's such a wonderful way to walk into a town. You know, get, <laughs> get, picked up by the, uh, get picked up at the airport, get rolled over to a brewery and said, Here, here's a flight of beer. <laughs> I, totally, I, I totally approve of this idea. Everybody should do it. I don't know why more people don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So obviously you have a breath of beers. You had a breath of beers that you brewed as a home brewer. What beer do you find yourself longing to drink? <sighs> well, I've been I've been into sour beers lately. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess uh, Duchess is one that, that really, when I get a chance to have one of those. Uh, but I'll, I'll go. I don't know. A good. I think the thing with sour beers I find though too is a lot of them are way too sour. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of going too much for to be acid bomb. Kind of like where IPAs have gone, or it's just you know more hops for the sake of more hops, and it's not really, in my opinion, adding to the experience of the drink. So, I, I a good complex sour, uh, which I don't have anything like that yet because that's going to take me a while. But I, I, I do have some uh, stuff uh, fermenting with some Brett right now. Uh, some we actually made an oat pale ale. With I think it was something like eighty four percent oats. Mm-hmm. Wow, <laughs> it was oh, a good. long day. That runoff was terrible. Yeah, <laughs> any rice holes in the mix there? Yeah, just... not enough. It definitely will be next time. More next time if I ever do it again. It was a terrible, <laughs> terrible day. How, how, how to how to know a brewer's frustrated by a batch of beer they made if I do it again? <laughs> but uh, it's turned into a really interesting beer uh, on its own. But we took some casks and added some bread so I'm looking forward to where it can go yeah 
you know, it'll particularly like all the kind of complex proteins and uh, uh, polysaccharides that are in the in the wort, probably. Yeah. So. All right. Uh, in your experience, both as, a, both as a home brewer and as a commercial brewer now, uh, what's the most unusual beery thing you've done? Well, that oat pale ale was definitely out there. I don't know of anyone else doing a a, a beer with that much that oat. much oat in it, and it's definitely come out as a kind of experience. It started as a really strange, milky-looking substance, and that's. That finally all fell out of suspension, so I'm glad it's a nice kind of clear, pale color. So it went from a Scottish horchata to a, <laughs> uh, to a beer? Yep. Um, I don't know. We, we've we done some, uh, well, I do a pumpkin porter that uh, with some spice and, and brewed with actual pumpkin. I guess that's not that out there. but With actual pie pumpkin? or Yep. There you go. Good man. I don't know. What's the worst thing to happen to you while brewing? Oh, well, it didn't happen to me, thankfully, but we did have uh, a spill of a, of a, out of a hot liquor tank once that hit someone's foot, not here in the home brewing, and that was uh, second-degree burns. That wasn't a good day. Yeah, we had that happen to one of our guys, and he, the only problem was he was wearing a sweatshirt when he got hit. So yeah. it got worse. Yeah, yeah, and his was it was a he was wearing um, big lace up boots, so he you know it, was like, it wasn't like he could pop them off too. He had to like actually untie them. Yeah, it wasn't good. All right, so now what common wisdom brewing practice do you think is either wrong or people's concern with it is overinflated? Is there anything that that people that people say you must do this, and you're like, nah, no. Uh, I guess I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I know I've recently reduced our mash times significantly. Like from what to what? 60 to 10 minutes. So you're, you're literally like doing in and then 10 minutes later coming. Uh, ten, to... In 10 minutes we start the recirculation. <clears throat> well, and I mean, we've seen that a lot with commercial brewers, yeah. but that, I mean, that, that seems to just, that may or may not, depending, we haven't done the experiments yet. But that could also just be, you know, one of the advantages that you get with the fact that you have so much liquid and so much mass right. that even while you're recirculating or running off, you still have enzymes in contact with starch right. form. And I don't know, you know, we don't have any hard scientific evidence. Like we haven't sent stuff off for chemical analysis or anything. But from uh, like our first round of brews, and now we've rebrewed most of those beers. And the second round, we haven't noticed any. Difference, so. All right. Well, and so we can kind of uh, think of that as something interesting uh, that you've done, or uh, in terms of discovery. All right. Let's get into the ingredient world. Okay. You know, so, uh, just like in music, you know, musicians have favorite instruments. What are your favorite instruments in the brewing world? What's uh, your favorite malt? Munich, for sure. Munich. Any particular Munich? Uh, we've been using the. The Brius 10 L. Mm-hmm. That's we're looking right now. There's a new monster in North Dakota, and they're working on their Munich. So we're going to see what they're what they come up with. What's the monster's name? Uh, two Trek. Two Trek. Two Trek Malting. They're located. I think their farm is out by Lincoln, which is a few miles outside of Bismarck. Uh, favorite hop. 
Um, that's a little harder. Lately, I guess it depends on what I want, what I'm going for. Well, we with your IPAs, you like your CTZ. Yeah, I definitely like CTZ. I mean, Cascade is, I don't know if you want to say overused. It's definitely used a lot, but it, I think it's a great hop, so there's no reason to not use it. Um, I, use, I use Fuggle or Fugle. <laughs> a lot, whatever you want. Well, you just lost Denny. Yeah. No, Denny has a lifelong hatred of Fuggles. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've had other people say that. I don't know. I mean, I think they just have a nice, they're mellow. I like that they're mellow. If you talk to Denny, he would tell you they taste like dirt. They taste like dirt. <laughs> he gets very cranky about it. He's very he's very non-mellow for a hippie. Um, <clears throat> what is uh, something you wish more people would drink uh, would drink that they don't right now? As far as style or? I guess I, I, I don't have a, I don't have anything there. I think people should drink what they want to drink. I don't, I mean, I think if you want to try something new, I would definitely try sour, something sour. But I think, again, like I said, there's so many examples that are too sour or, or not properly balanced or something that, you know, people try them and they go, ugh. That's terrible. I don't like that. Whereas mm-hmm. if you got something that was more balanced or more complex and not just acid, it would be a better experience. But I don't know. I would just say try some. Always try something new. And but I don't. I mean, people should drink what they like to drink. So if I if I were to take you to my local pub, which has you know sixty some odd beers on tap, a good number of them Belgians, your your guiding philosophy would be. What is I not? What have I not had before? Almost always for my first beer, if I'm out, it's gonna be try something I haven't had. There you go. You're very much a nuevo file, <laughs> which is a good thing because that's what I am too. Um, all right, so well, now you've obviously you've done you said 16, 16 styles so far. Is there something that you are itching to try beyond the getting the oat beer out there and getting a sour that you? That you're trying to figure out room in the schedule for? Uh, I've got, I've actually got <laughs> some purple corn right now that I got from a friend that I'm going to try to do some sort of purple corn, probably a, a light beer to try. I want to try to actually get it to be purple. Mm-hmm. I've got 50 pounds of corn, so I figure. I think you're going to have to stock up on beets. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, I've also got, there's a, a berry. I can't think of the name right now. But it has a, it's very purple. It's mm-hmm. juice, so I'm thinking if I need to correct with that, that might, might work. Yeah. But and then I've got uh, probably a chocolate porter. I think is going to be fairly soon. Like with chocolate malt and chocolate chocolate. Yeah, probably like cacao nibs or awesome. something along those lines. All right, and then. Um, Given that you've recently made the transition from homebrew to professional brewer, and then you had that year period where you're trying to adapt your recipes, yeah, and what what differences did you find between what you were doing with your homebrew recipes versus what you were doing with your pro recipes? Like, were there any sort of like changes to the calculations you had to make, like in terms of like not malts of a particular variety? Was there anything that was unexpected where you couldn't just like go? Uh, look, I made this five-gallon recipe. I will now turn it into a three-barrel recipe. Yeah, um, we did. I mean, the hop utilization is definitely different. 
and we so you're, you're we, more you're more efficient in the, yeah. in the commercial and system. we we had already adjusted for that but obviously it's hard to know exactly what you're going to get so, so we, yeah, we had adjusted but didn't adjust enough so we're working on some of the recipes we like uh, that way but uh, some of them like the blonde ale turned out more bitter so like how, how much how much more utilization do you think you get in your commercial system than in your homebrew um, I like, think we're, well, we were set up at like 115 and that wasn't enough. So I don't know. I think we might be around 120. Okay. So that, and that's good because I mean, a lot of people won't know that when they, you know, if you're doing a program, you, know, you need to prepare to really to adjust and, uh, just to get into the same ballpark, particularly yeah. if you're going to do anything with any sort of hop character. All right. So, uh, two last questions. Okay. Uh, other brewing thoughts that you think people should know? Mm, I just I think everyone should try it. I mean, everyone who's into good who's into good beer should try brewing. I mean, it's easy, especially with the quality of the of kits you can get and extracts. I mean, it doesn't it's not a huge investment. Mm-hmm. All you really need is a kettle and a bucket if you want to get really simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I have a bucket. I have a kettle. I have beer. <laughs> yep. I like it. All right, and then the last thing, we, we always, I mean, look, let's face it, those of us who are into good beer and who are crazy enough to go brew good beer, you know, we're generally kind of obsessive. Just a little. So what non-beery thing are you obsessed with? Uh, I've been listening to a lot of Frank Zappa lately. If you're talking about just everything in general. Yeah, everything Yeah, I've been just pouring through Frank Zappa albums lately, just constantly listening to Frank Zappa. Are you you digging for Zappa-esque inspiration for the beers, or...? Yeah, I've been thinking about it, definitely. Uh, Either for naming things, or even listening to... He talks about all kinds of crazy stuff in his music, so I might try some... looking for some other inspiration. Well, at the very least, you could do the uh, whole Wu-Tang fermenter thing, but with Zappa. See if it makes the beer more psychedelic or something. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, before we leave, anything else that you want to tell the audience? Where, where can they find your beer right now? Right here, unfortunately. Right now is the only place you can get us. So you have to come to West Fargo mm-hmm. and uh, check out our brewery. Uh, well, we hope to do some local distribution and maybe small amount of, I don't know about region, if regional is even too, maybe like the next town over sort of stuff. <laughs> Uh, but uh, with three barrels, we just don't have a huge capacity to distribute widely. So come over here to West Fargo and enjoy the hyper-local flavors that you can get at Flantland Brewery. All right, well, hey, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to be yeah, on the podcast absolutely. and sharing your knowledge. Thank you for thank coming. You. Wow, man. that I, You have to admire somebody like Frank who works so hard uh, to try and make his brewery succeed. Yeah, and I mean, it was really kind of nifty to see i mean it was yeah you know, right. how many hats can you wear at one time and they they were doing a really great job because i mean if you'd walked into this place you'd think like full brew pub and everything else but i mean no i mean they're just a, a little brewery with a very dedicated tasting bar and they, they're knocking it out wow. on their little small That's scale great, man that is absolutely stunning uh and and really good to hear so you did some other interviews while you were there that we're going to be hearing, huh? Yeah, a couple more. Going to talk a little bit about the uh, Hoppy Homebrew uh, 
to talk a little bit about the Hoppy Homebrew Competition and uh, some of the quirks of that uh, particular festival. And also uh, the one I think we're going to change the pace just a little bit, and we're going to talk to a good friend of both of ours, uh, Susan Rude. Uh, she has a meadery there in Fargo, Prairie Rose Meadery. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, how she goes and makes uh, mead commercially when it's one of those things that you sit there and scratch your head and go, <laughs> but how is that commercially possible? So look forward to those in a upcoming episode uh, as we uh, keep uh, dancing around and providing right. you more That's content right. from more places. Okay, well, it is time to take a little bit of a break here. And uh, when we come back, we will have uh, our quick tip. And we will have uh, something other than beer this week, which is pretty darn cool. So stick around, grab another beer, and we will be right back. All right, and as we like to do here on the show, it's time for a quick tip. Uh, and this uh, this week, we have a quick tip from one of our listeners. Uh, Denny, why don't you go ahead and hit the audience with some quick tip dish? Okay, this tip comes from Nelson Kroll. I hope I pronounced that right, Nelson, from ReggieBeer.com. And he says, I just wanted to share my icebox, or icing in general, process it has yielded two competition best of show awards in 700 entry competitions. Uh, obviously, Nelson knows what he's doing here. I use two liter Mountain Dew bottles to ice, fill just above the top of the label, 50 ish ounces, then squeeze to remove some of the air, then on their side in the freezer to give good surface area and a thinner layer of liquid to freeze. They freeze fast, and you can eyeball the progress and squeeze the bottle for firmness. When a good slush forms all the way through the bottles, I pour out the yummy liquid stuff. I usually start for Icebach with a hefty Doppelbach, 10 to 12%, then ice it to give me around 18%. Two notes on this. Consider lowering the hop bittering on your base beer. I shoot for the low end of BJCP guidelines for Doppelbach. Because the bittering is concentrated too, and a higher bitter base beer may become too bitter when iced. That leftover ice? Melt it and drink it. It's still a 5 to 6% beer, and I've entered the Icebach Ice Only beer in competitions as a dunkel. Nelson, buddy, <laughs> that, those are great tips, and I am now inspired to make an ice beer of some sort because that's such a good idea and so easy compared to the way i've done it in the past well and to me it just makes it so that you can hey just go and make an ice beer on a full on the fly you know I, I'm, I'm used to thinking of like oh you know i'm gonna make a 10 gallon batch and i'll save one portion of it to ice and the, I, I always kind of feel like that's a little wasteful but this is kind of cool and i want to go out and actually make an ice mead now right this. yep 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 and now it's Drew's turn, something other than beer. All right. Well, you guys know me. I'm sometimes a, a sports fanatic. I mean, after all, it's fairly common. Uh, it's fairly obvious from who I am that I'm absolutely obsessed with sports. And of course, as we're recording this, we had an amazing sports event happen this past weekend with an absolutely shocking victory. That's right. In the 2017 Wind Games, Kirapo <laughs> of Singapore 
who's 14 years old, won the whole competition and would just absolutely amazing tricks. If you don't know what the wind games are, you know, these vertical uh, free fall tubes, you know, basically a big fan with a giant mesh in the floor that blows straight up and you perform free fall tricks in them. They're really, really awesome. And if you can't go skydiving or you don't want to throw yourself out of a plane at 13,000 feet, and there are people doing these wind tunnels or using these wind tunnels to do acrobatic competitions. And we'll include a link to the videos of uh, Kira's routine. But holy hell. Yeah, I mean, it's, just, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's total amazeballs what she's doing. I mean, like things that are like delicate and so weirdly anti-gravity and walking upside down in a loop while <laughs> being thrown up in the air. I mean, it's just like... How much time does that take in order to figure out that level of control? And here she is doing it at the age of 14. So she won uh, both uh, for the women's category and also won a speed competition, despite the fact that this was the first time that she'd ever competed in the adult divisions of this uh, competition. So we're going to include a video to it just because I thought it was pretty damn rad. It is It is like way beyond cool. Uh, I'd love to try to do it, but I'm way too uncoordinated, so... Yeah, I just look at it and go, I'd find a way to break so my So time to, uh, to wrap up this week. We want to thank you all for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing, or on Facebook. Uh, we have a Facebook page you can uh, check out. Uh, and uh, we're on lots and lots of beer forums out there. I'm on uh, the AHA forum and a half a dozen other ones. You can find Drew hanging around the Reddit homebrewing forum. Uh, and you can also email us anytime you want to ask us questions, uh, give us comments, suggest topics. Uh, you can email to podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or you can call 626-765-1-ALE and leave us your comments and questions there. You can also email each one of us individually. I'm Denny at ExperimentalBrew.com and he's Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. Give us a call, send us an email, and we'll be back next time with more beer, 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 beer. So until then, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.